Good morning. Thanks for joining me again this morning. I hope that you've taken some time this morning already to maybe sing some songs with your family from the suggested ones that were given or spend some time in prayer uh, and then also read some scripture together already. And now as we dive into our sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter two, I hope that you'll have your Bible there handy and dig in along with me. So last week, Jason led us to understand Solomon's response to a life that was devoted to pleasure or self-indulgence. And and he listed a bunch of different things that he was devoting his life to, that he was uh, pursuing with all of his might. And he he talked about things from from laughter, from alcohol, fancy houses, uh, big gardens, pools, Parks, orchards, authority over other people, big farms, gold and silver, music, and then eventually a lot of women. Now, how many people do you know that would say, if I just had an abundance of a couple of those things, then I would be truly happy. Now, as good Christian boys and girls, we don't say that sort of a thing. But how often do we think that kind of a thing? Well, if I just had this, and you can fill in the blank, if I just had more of that, then I would be really happy. Or maybe even more convincing, we may not say that, we may not say that we think it, but how often do we live that way? Where we're still pursuing after that next best thing that we think is going to satisfy us. You know, we're so driven and focused on advancing in business or filling up our bank account or chasing after the latest and greatest thing. But what did Solomon say about these things after he devoted so much of his life to them for such a long time? Well, let's look at that again together in verse 11. Solomon, after he had tried all of these things, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now let's keep reading in our text this morning. Chapter 2, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 26. Read this along with me. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what was done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray together this morning. Father, some difficult and hard things to think through as we read from your word today. Lord, I think we can identify in a lot of ways. And I pray this morning that you would teach us. I pray that you would help us to see the error of a lot of our human striving, but but then also to remember and be intentional and commit to putting our attention in a place that doesn't fail us, that isn't vanity. And Lord, as we discover what that is and how to do that, Lord, I pray that your grace would be with us. May your spirit be in our homes this morning as we worship you now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So after all of what Solomon had done, he said, it's vanity. It's striving after the wind. Nothing significant was gained from it, is basically what he said in chapter 2, verse 11. So the highs of chasing earthly pleasure will always fade. And when we begin to feel that truth really start to sink in, that's when we usually start another headlong pursuit after the next thing that we think is going to make us happy. It's going to surely satisfy us. Brothers and sisters, friends, this morning, believing earthly things will satisfy us is a crazy cycle that never actually produces lasting joy because we keep searching for satisfaction in created things rather than the Creator. And in our text this morning, verses 12 through 26, Solomon adds to this growing list of things that he's trying to be filled up with. He's trying to fill himself up with. And he starts in verse 12 by sending a message to posterity, if you will. He's giving a message to everybody, the king specifically, who was going to come after him, who was going to rule next. He says, basically, hey, your king tried it all. Don't believe that you're going to think of something that I missed in order that will really make you happy. Don't try to outdo me in pursuing pleasure. He says, been there, done that. Didn't work. Entertainment, self-indulgence, those things weren't going to fill him up. They were madness and they were folly in the end. And so he swings the pendulum from that all the way over to this other extreme. And he now considers wisdom or, or living wisely. Now, it's true, and he mentions this, it's true that living wisely benefits a person more than living foolishly. And he equates this to the difference between walking in light and then walking in darkness. Now, I think that this is pretty common sense, but let me share with you a horrifying scenario. This is uh, terrifying and will haunt your dreams. And here it is. 
Picture, if you will, a dad walking through his kid's toy room in the dark. Now, maybe that's not as terrifying to you as it is to me. My kids can be kind of messy and leave their toy room in disarray. But that's terrifying to me. I mean, who knows what kind of booby trap is waiting in the dark to spring on me as I'm walking through that toy room. Uh, Am I going to step on a baby doll? Am I going to step on a board game? Am I going to destroy a set of Lincoln logs? Or, and I hesitate to even mention this one, am I going to step on a Lego? Who knows? So, what's the solution here? This, This is common sense. Like I said, the solution is common sense for the dad walking through the toy room in the dark, but it's also common sense, as Solomon puts it, turn on the light. Just turn on the light. Solomon has just identified a bunch of things in life that at their core are foolishness. They're folly. They do not satisfy. And he says pursuing those things is like walking in darkness. It only ends in pain and heartache. Just like the dad walking through the toy room in the dark. So turn on the light. Again, he's saying that there is some benefit to walking in wisdom. But then he kind of comes to the end of that pursuit as well in verse 15. And he says, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. So is wisdom better than foolishness? Yeah, it is. Is wisdom the end all of what life is to be about? Should that be the pursuit of our life? No, because wise men and foolish men both die in the end. Just let that sink in for a minute. Making self-indulgent pleasure your life's goal, Solomon has already said, that does not work. It doesn't fill you up. But making the pursuit of wisdom your life's goal really doesn't work either. Because think about it. The smartest person in the room at any given moment... They may be more likable than everyone else, but guess what? They still die too. And not only that, but how they are remembered, Solomon says here, will eventually be forgotten as well, no matter if they're wise or if they're a fool. Now this truth, I hope, shatters the deception that fulfillment comes by spending your life trying to make a name for yourself. The wise man and the foolish man both still only have a certain number of days on the earth. It's been said, and you may have heard it before, but death is the great equalizer. The wise and the fool die all the same. Solomon's response to this realization in verse 17 is the same that ours may be even today. He says, so I hated life for all is vanity and striving after wind. I have a strong suspicion that every one of us has felt this kind of thing at some point in our lives to some degree you've tried your hardest to do the right thing and to live the right way and then the person who didn't really care how they treated other people or how they lived at all they end up living better or maybe they end up living longer maybe your godly loved one gets sick and dies while their ungodly neighbor lives to ripe old age. Life seems unfair because the good person, 
the good and wise person and the not so good and not so wise person, they both die in the end. So what good is all of our efforts towards wisdom then? Death renders the effort to live wisely meaningless in the end, it would seem. And Solomon was driven by the pursuit of these things. And when he realized they wouldn't really satisfy him, the same things that he was pursuing, driven towards, then drove him to despair for life in itself. He says, in fact, that he hated life because all these pursuits are meaningless. They were grievous to him. But maybe there's another place to find meaning. Surely we can find something that will bring us purpose and and fill us up. Maybe working hard and accumulating wealth to pass down to our children will bring satisfaction and meaning. This is what Solomon turns to in verses 18 through 26. He says, maybe hard work and wealth will bring meaning to my life. But then again, he figures out the answer to this question pretty quick. Nope. He toiled hard to lay up treasure for himself and for his children and for his grandchildren. But he came to realize in verse 19 that you just can't know whether your kids or your grandkids are going to be wise or if they're going to be fools. Will they use their inheritance wisely or wastefully? If you leave your wealth to your family, they may not use it well, he says, because they weren't the ones who worked hard, who toiled hard to earn it. And so they could easily squander their inheritance. Work in itself is also vanity. It's also meaningless, he says, because by the time you're old enough to enjoy the fruits of your labor, oftentimes you don't have the physical capability to do the things that you wanted to do while you were able to. Verse 22 and 23, they paint this, I'm afraid, all too familiar picture of a person who is what we would call a workaholic. You give everything to your job. You might even say that you put your whole heart and soul into it. Solomon puts it this way. He says the strivings of heart. Let's get personal for just a second here. Have you ever laid awake at night because something with your job was keeping you up? Maybe it was an upcoming meeting that you were stressed about, or maybe it was a conversation with a boss or a coworker that you just are replaying in your mind over and over, thinking of all the things that you wish you would have said in the moment or done in the moment. Or maybe it's just dreading going back to work in the morning or on Monday. I think most of us have been there in that kind of a place. And man, I understand it's not fun. You know, we all want jobs where you can walk out of the building at five o'clock or whenever you get off and not think about it even a little bit until you walk into the doors the next morning, the next time you go to work. But in reality, few of us respond to our work that way. And because of this, I would venture to say that the problem isn't really with work. The problem isn't actually lying with our jobs. I think the problem is with you and me. We don't know how to properly balance work and the rest of life. Now, please understand me. I'm in no way condemning hard work or being dedicated to what you do. Uh, Just think back to the garden. Before sin ever even entered the picture, God gave Adam 
work to do, to tend to the garden, to care for the animals. And, and, and it was good. He said it was a good thing. Also, we just got done going through the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians 6, we're, we were reminded that hard work is actually an evidence of a person's salvation. And on the opposite side, a lazy work ethic does not display the fruit of salvation in someone. So I don't think work is the problem any more than laughter or music or gardening or money or sex or wisdom is the problem. All of those things are given by God as good gifts for his children to enjoy. But the brokenness of sin has not only marred God's image on us as human beings, but sin has also twisted how we view and use God's gifts. So when we spend all of our effort and all of our energy pursuing the gifts instead of the giver, boy, we are ripe for the kind of frustration that Solomon is describing here. And all that we have felt all that we have maybe still feeling probably lines up with what he is feeling and saying in these verses. And the truth is, if we stay with pursuing the gifts rather than the giver, if we stay with that as our life's goal, we are going to reap the results of idolatry as well. Because at its core, that's what pursuing all of those other things is. It's idolatry. And Isaiah reveals the foolishness of this. Uh, I love this text. Uh, The fusion class that Jason teaches has been going through the book of Isaiah. And not too long ago, before we stopped being able to meet, we were in Isaiah chapter 44. And there are some potent verses in this text for us this morning that I want us to look at. So turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 15 through 17. Isaiah 44, 15 through 17. He is writing this and he's speaking of trees, believe it or not. Created things of trees. And he says this. He says, Then it, talking about the tree, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and he worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Do you see the foolishness of this attitude? Now, we may not be whittling little wooden gods out of trees anymore, but friends, we are inclined to do the exact same thing in our own lives in 2020. Let's take a case in point here and let's continue considering work as a case study here. Work, we know, we've just talked about, is a gift from God. Work is a good thing. God instructs believers to work hard and to honor those in authority over them. A believer's work in this way reveals the Spirit of God moving in their life. But sin warps and twists God's good gift until we replace God with the gift itself. 
We choose to make our work the most important thing instead of God. So, in essence, we burn half the tree for fire and then worship the other half, expecting it to make our lives better. We dedicate our very lives to the pursuit of accumulating wealth and making a name for ourselves. And then we expect God to expect, we expect God to bless that in our lives. What a delusion. Why would God bless our pursuits of idols? Every time we think the things on this earth will satisfy us, we are falling for that lie. Work isn't the problem. The human heart is the problem. We are so desperately trying to find meaning and to find purpose that when our desires jump up and say, Hey, jump, our hearts ask, Well, how high? Our hearts just fling themselves wherever our desires are pointing. That's the problem here. But the solution to this heart problem is one that can be found. And part of that is found here in verses 24 and 25 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The answer, Solomon says, isn't to refuse enjoyment in eating and drinking and finding joy in work or anything like that. He says the answer is to recognize that these are, in fact, gifts from the hand of God. And because they are from God, they can and should be enjoyed by his people. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, you just said we're not supposed to find joy in work. Well, I'm not talking in circles here. I I want us to see that there are two things in this discussion that are 100% true. Okay? Number one is that the human heart is sinful. Number two is that God and his gifts are good. So the question is, is it possible to enjoy gardening? Is it possible to enjoy music and intimacy with your spouse and good food and to enjoy what you do for a living without making those things an idol? Well, yes, it is possible. But it's not about denying those earthly pleasures like the monks of old tried to do. It's about keeping the gifts of God in their proper place. In the Christ-centered commentary, Daniel Aiken puts it this way. He says, as we ate, drank, enjoyed our spouse, and enjoyed our work, it would cause us to thank God for His goodness. But human sin distorted that. So now we look to the created things for the satisfaction that only God can give. Not only is this rebellion against God, but also it renders our true enjoyment of these gifts almost impossible. We want more, 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 and we are never happy because more will not satisfy us. Only God can. There are not many more things that I can think of on an earthly level uh, that is more satisfying than to get off of my lawnmower after uh, cutting the grass and just to kind of survey and look out over the freshly cut yard. Now, maybe you're not weird like me in that, but that's a satisfying feeling. Or maybe you enjoy gardening and so you've just spent hours weeding your garden and you you just kind of stand up and kind of rub your back a little bit maybe. Um, But then you look over and you're just so, you know, satisfied with what you have done and accomplished. Uh, maybe inside your home, you just are, you, you're never more satisfied than when you hear the laughter of your kids or your grandkids. These things are wonderful. They're blessings from God, but they are not an end in themselves. 
the enjoyment that we get from a well-manicured landscape, that's not our God. We don't worship a beautiful mountain or a clear stream or a wild animal. And we don't even worship our family. Any fulfillment that we get from any of those things is not the end. They're intended to point us to the giver, back to the one who gave us those things. Solomon says, apart from him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment at all? That's the key to this, recognizing that God is the giver of every good thing. And he pours out his blessings on those who please him, verse 26 says. James 1.17, you might remember, says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the only way to rightly enjoy the things on this earth is to first be satisfied in the Creator. Let me say that one more time. The only way to rightly enjoy things on this earth is to first be satisfied in the Creator. See, if we spend our lives moving from one thing to another thing, constantly searching for the thing that's going to satisfy us and fill us up, we're going to come to the end and we're going to look down into our cup and we're going to be severely disappointed. For the Christian who finds their contentment and their purpose in God, he's going to give them, verse 26 says, wisdom and knowledge and joy even. But for the person who goes about pleasing themselves instead of God, they're going to find that they've worked their entire lives for nothing because all is vanity and striving after wind. What they thought was going to fill them up, God actually uses, he says, to bless those who please him. Think back, if you will, if this is confusing, think back to when the Israelites left Egypt. Uh, they, after all of the ten plagues had happened, they were sent out. And what did the Egyptians do? They gave them gold. They gave them silver. They gave them clothing. They, in essence, they blessed God's people as they were leaving. None of this, I think, should really surprise us, though, I don't think. See, when Solomon talks about the one who pleases God, he's not talking about giving good things to good and moral people. And he's not saying that God is pleased by religious people who just try their best. Because even the most religious and moral person you've ever met or ever even heard of has still fallen short of God's standard of perfection. So that renders them still guilty of God's righteous judgment in their lives. In reality, Romans tells us very clearly, that none of us really please God in and of ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that if you recognize that you're a sinner, if you repent of your sin and you put your faith and believe in Jesus, at that moment you're justified and united with him by faith and God no longer sees you in your sin anymore. He sees you in his son. He sees you in Christ And if you've been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus for your sin, when God looks at you now, he does not see your screw ups. He does not see your failures. He sees the perfect life of his son, Jesus Christ. So because of Christ, God gives good gifts to you along with the ability to enjoy them. Now, let's end with a familiar story to most of you. Let's end with the story of the prodigal son. Again, this is probably familiar to most of you. 
I was reading some things about this uh, text in Ecclesiastes this week, and someone brought this up, and I was just struck by it, and I had never seen this before. Now, we tend to think of the prodigal son's problem was that he snatched his inheritance early, and then he went on a spending spree on elaborate parties and all of that sort of thing. Now, he, he did do those things. That, that's true of him. But remember something here. The story doesn't just begin with him partying. It actually ends with him partying too. His pursuit of fulfillment in his life, it left him broken and destitute. He had lost all that he'd had. But when he came to his senses, the grace of God, and he returned home when the lost son was found, as is put in that story, that story ends with this elaborate party. His dad, the father, sees him from afar, down the road, from far off, and he doesn't even let him finish his apology because of his undeterred love for his son. He reaches out, he rushes to him to bless him. As Danny Aiken also puts it, the difference is that the son cannot enjoy the party rightly until he is satisfied in the father's love. If you spend your life pursuing pleasure, entertainment, wisdom, wealth, or work in itself, you're never, ever going to have a cup that is full. You'll come to the point, if you haven't already, where you look at your life and you wonder what it was all for. Has it been worth it? What has it all been for? You might regret some of the decisions that you've made. You might even feel like Solomon felt in this text, and you might just hate your life right now. Please hear me when I say this. Your life does not have to remain in the place that it is now. You don't have to stay stuck in a place where you are now. You don't have to live in discontentment or give in to despair. There is hope in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn away from the pursuit of earthly things to fill you up. They won't work. Solomon is telling us very clearly he's tried it all and it didn't fill him up. It didn't bring him purpose. It didn't work for Solomon. And if you hear anything today, hear this. It's not going to work for you either. Filling yourself up with the things of this world will not work for you either. But a right relationship with Jesus Christ, that causes you to be filled up with him first, which then allows you to properly enjoy the things of this life because you recognize where they've come from. The hand of God himself. I pray that you're encouraged by this message this morning. I pray that you would see the error of chasing after the things of this world as Solomon did and instead throw yourself on the mercy and the joy and the wisdom of God. Let's pray together. God, I would pray that you would knock down every idol that we have built up that covers your face. Deep down, we know that the things of this earth, they just really won't satisfy us. Please deliver us, Lord. Free us, if you will, from the pursuit of them. So whether it's pleasure or whether it's wisdom or whether it's work, Lord, forgive us for making that thing the most important thing in our life. Help us to have a right view of all of those things and not elevate them higher than our pursuit of you, Lord. Help us to be satisfied in you, more than anything 
in this life. And when we receive good things in this life, I pray, Lord, that it will cause us to worship you as the giver and that we would not worship the gift. We thank you, though, Lord, for the greatest gift of all. We thank you for your son. And we do worship him. We do worship that gift, Lord. God, may we be found in him. And may we also be found living for him every moment of every day. Lord, forgive us of when we fall short. Remind us of the joys that it is to be found in Christ. And now when you look at your children, you do not see all of our mess ups. Lord, you see the perfection of your son, the righteousness that has been imputed to his to your children because of Christ on the cross. Lord, if someone is listening or watching today that has never put their faith in you and is despairing for life and is in this place of all being vanity, Lord, I pray that you would deliver them from despair. And that they would cry out on your strong name, the strong name of Jesus Christ, for salvation. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.